Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast hosted by some of your favorite people in Philadelphia. And of course, we're on an awesome network called Movie John. Check us out there. Check out all the other podcasts they've got going on. Y'all, today is a special day for me. I'm so excited about the movie I'm bringing um, because it has been a long time coming. This movie is literally everything to me. Um, And I already spoke to Connor earlier today and said, I will accept absolutely um, no negative comments. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But before we get into a conversation about the mummy, um, How's everybody doing? Have you seen anything good lately that would rival the mummy? Well, that's sort of a big ask. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've seen some things lately um, that I, uh, I I really enjoyed and uh, also saw something I really uh, disliked. I saw, um, uh, first, I guess I'd say, uh, Bo Burnham's uh, Inside special that was recently launched on Netflix. It's old news by now. Everybody's seen it or whatever. Or, or if you haven't, you've probably heard about it. I really, really loved that. I thought it was a very interesting and unique special the, the likes of which i've not seen really ever i mean it's it's kind of more a theater piece in a lot of ways than it is a stand-up special um some really interesting music some really insightful things to say not only about the dominance of corporately owned and algorithmic social media and its influence on our lives but that particularly at a time when a lot of us have been locked away via lockdown and pandemic uh you know uh, precautions and everything and um also has a lot to say about uh him as a uh white content creator white male content creator so uh very self-aware but as he points out throughout the special is that self-awareness does not absolve anyone of anything uh just very informed and really interesting and uh one that I really dug, uh, especially as uh, something that explores, pretty thoroughly explores for a comedy special, uh, severe depression uh, at a time when I have been not doing as great. Um, so it really uh, made an impact and I really, really enjoyed it. By contrast, what I really didn't enjoy and actually pretty fervently hated was Space Jam, A New Legacy. No, <laughs> God. <laughs> which I watched um, on HBO Max, which uh, which is on. It's also in theaters. And I have not seen uh, since, I mean, since maybe Ready Player One, but it, it, it's kind of like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to compare it uh, as far as its content to something like this. But uh, in terms of its soullessness, uh, something like Food Fight, it is a truly hollow, empty display of where Hollywood is directing itself in terms of aggressively aggregating IP um, and intellectual property and really just mashing it all into this like orgiastic reference fest. Um, And one that is a movie that doesn't say anything interesting. In fact, uh, it, it portrays Don Cheadle as uh, Al G Rhythm, who is an algorithm that is uh, trying to digitally monetize Warner Brothers properties by intermeshing them and suggests that that is like, you know, a, a bad thing. He's the antagonist of the film. But that's exactly what the movie does. And not in a way that is like cutely self-aware, but is in fact ignorant of it villainizing itself as an idea. So uh, I'm not a huge fan of the first one, to be honest. Uh, but I would say uh, it is miles above this movie how did you feel about wiley coyote being in mad max fury road yeah he's in that he's in that doing that and i mean i honestly that's one of the funnier parts of the movie the i guess i've been season two of i think you should leave with tim robinson came out on netflix um love season one 
It's a very hard show to talk about, but I love season two. Sort of, if you never heard of it, Tim Robinson, comedian, writer. It's definitely one of my favorite, like, sketch comedy shows ever. Um, sort of in the vein of Tim and Eric, in a way. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. It's something, there are some episodes that I don't really like, but then revisit later and absolutely fall in love. Things that I understand, you know, keep, don't think are funny, but then are in my brain forever. So it has a really good way of just sticking with you. And I think his humor is just spot on mostly. So definitely recommend. I think you should leave season two and season one. And each episode is only like 15 minutes. So you can really blast through the whole thing pretty quickly. There were multiple moments in season two that I just found myself really uh, connected to. One was the hot dog in the sleeve eating during meeting. <laughs> oh my God. This sketch is my life right now. Like just needing to eat and being like, I'm just going to have to eat this peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a staff meeting. Like I just have to. Also the driving sketch. <laughs> the guy is yelling at, um, the other guy is like, what are you doing? And then Tim Robinson is like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm sitting behind this wheel. Uh, you know, just reveals that he doesn't know how to drive. Yeah. Yes. Then I was like, this is also my life. <laughs> um, and fucking Dan flashes. I can't, I think about that <laughs> sketch probably every day and how actually I want every single Dan flashes shirt. <laughs> I don't think there's been a day that's gone by in our household where we haven't referenced coffin flops. Oh my God, it's amazing. They keep saying coffin flops isn't the show. <laughs> Corncob um, TV. It's like, get <laughs> me fucking Corncob TV. Yeah, I, I, I really loved the first season of that too. And I think that this being renewed for a second season really allowed them to go full tilt with it because it's a lot like longer form and it's a lot crazier. So it's it's definitely really still maintaining a stride. But also, like, I mean, sketches that, like, cut deep, like the um, diner sketch with, with Bob Odenkirk. Odenkirk. We wish well. I, by yeah. now, I'm sure he's yeah. fine. But Yeah, we hope you're okay. Um, that is so good. And the Claire's, the final episode, uh, episode of season two, oh, it, it, like, hits deep down. I mean, there are some, like, really wonderful moments of true like this is like a meditation on life and what it means to be human and what it means to like face your own mortality and I was like I did not know that I would reach this level with I think you should leave I do also, have one episode left oh sorry I have saying I do have one episode oh, sorry. left okay. yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah, don't yeah. I mean it's not a story you can really spoil but I'm very excited to watch it um, my wife and I were going to finish that tonight oh so good. I will say if you're a fan of Tim Robinson's, absolutely go back and check out the Comedy Central show Detroiters, which is a really hilarious show that unfortunately only got renewed for a second season uh, and is over now. But uh, features Sam Richardson, who appears in several of those sketches and is just a really fantastic show. He does little buff boys, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great sketch. And Sam Richardson is awesome, too. So, yeah, check out that show also. How are you watching Detroiters? I was trying to find it, but I could only find season two or like two episodes of. Si yeah. How yeah. You, you have find to have, it? you've got to have like a cable subscription so you can access the Comedy Central app. 
for that. Oh, so, got it. Yeah. So like many other uh, things, many other streaming platforms, we're stealing it from our parents in our house. If you have Paramount Plus, you can watch it as well. Yeah, I don't, don't have that. <laughs> Just a quick, I have been plugging away at uh, the noir, neo-noirs on Criterion Channel um, and just watched uh, a movie that I've heard about and had been meaning watch for a long time and never did, but finally sat down and watched it uh, called The Long Goodbye, Robert Altman. Uh, and it's great. It uh, And it's, ugh, I realized that I like love watching movies set in the 70s in Los Angeles. It's like so fun to like see uh, that part of like that city you know whatever 50 years ago whatever but um yeah it was great it was uh it's elliot gould is really an odd like and fun guy to watch (laughs) yeah it's a pretty great movie speaking of a pretty great movie i think it's now time for us to finally discuss the 1999 cinematic masterpiece the mummy guys i can't believe that this day is finally here it's been coming for so long it has it's been like a threat a promise and now <laughs> here we are and it it comes in our what are we calling this our grab bag month of movies that we really couldn't fit into other categories I have wanted to talk about The Mummy for so long, but just wanted to hold out until the perfect moment. And honestly, why not have that moment now? Um, So The Mummy, for those of you who have not seen it, which like, what um, are you doing with your life? And like, why are you listening to this podcast? I'm just kidding. Um, But for those of you who um, maybe don't know what The Mummy is, the Mummy was directed and the screenplay was written by Stephen Summers, who is responsible for The Adventures of Huck Finn, Van Helsing, Odd Thomas, and a few others. Uh, it stars Brennan Fraser, Rachel Weisz, uh, Odette Fair, John Hanna, um, Arnold Vaslu, and Kevin J. O'Connor, just to mention a few. Uh, the budget was about $62 million, and at the box office, it made $416 million, so it was definitely a smash hit. Um, the synopsis that I stole from, uh, someone on Google, God bless whoever you are, wherever you are. Um, so here, here it is. The Mummy is a rousing, suspenseful, and horrifying epic about an expedition of treasure-seeking explorers in the Sahara Desert in 1925, which is actually not correct, it's 1926. Stumbling upon an ancient tomb, the hunters unwittingly set loose a 3,000-year-old legacy of terror, which is embodied in the vengeful reincarnation of an Egyptian priest who had been sentenced to eternity as one of the living dead. Um, it's such an enthusiastic description that I was convinced that you must have written it. <laughs> um, thank you. I didn't, but I'll still take credit for it. Um, something that I really love and I learned not all that recently, maybe a couple of years ago about this movie is how close it was to not actually being made. So obviously this Mummy is a remake of the Universal Monster original, The Mummy, in 1932. Um, And there had been other mummy reincarnations and sequels. But in 1988, 
Universal was finally like, all right, I think it's about time for us to revive this. And um, a, a pair of directors, they sort of had their hands together writing a script, but they didn't have a lot of money to work with. They had um, maybe about like $10 million to work with, which, you know, $10 million is a lot to me, but in when it comes to movies, that's like peanuts. So um, I can definitely understand why that might've been frustrating. So Within like eight or nine years, so many different people had their hands on this movie, this script. Dave, you have. Oh my God. It's, it's an insane history. I mean, it was originally going to, uh, George Romero wrote a treatment of the, the screenplay that was going to be just sort of like a dark horror movie. It was then going to be kicked off to, um, to Clive Barker for direction, the director of, uh, you know, the Hellraiser series and a, a variety of, pretty extravagant horror films uh, that was going to be, uh, quote, dark, sexual, and filled with mysticism. And then at one point was also going to be kicked off to uh, Joe Dante as director, increasing the budget with the idea of incorporating Daniel Day-Lewis as the brooding mummy. Yeah. Um, How lucky... Are we that Steven Summers got the the green light for this? Um, he pitched the idea of let's modernize it, but keep it in the past, and let's bring Indiana Jones esque back. Let's make this an event, uh, a adventure, and, and a romance movie. So, um, I think that was a great idea. Clearly, the studio agreed, and also so did the world. Uh, <laughs> made a lot of money at the box office. So. We've talked about this movie as a podcast. We've talked about it individually. So it was no one's first time seeing it, correct? Right. Um, so I don't know how many times y'all have watched this movie in the past. What was it like to revisit it? I watched it for the, actually for the first time this year, or I guess, no, 2020, but like within the year. I, uh, yeah, watched it for the first time. And I had I had a lot of fun with it the first time, but I think I didn't know what to expect. But then rewatching it, I had a better time like watching it. Like when I rewatched it for the episode, I was like, okay, I know exactly like what tone. I know what like I'm kind of ride I'm in for. And I remember like funny beats and funny moments and like rewatching it definitely highlighted those key hilarious moments and made it more enjoyable. Like every time the mummy dislodges his jaw, I just laugh. <laughs> and uh, it does it like eight or nine times. It's I'm like, so many. One or two. Give me one or two. It's too many. But go ahead. <laughs> And so I think like the things that I found like kind of like, huh, the first watch, I was like, that's kind of the move. Like just it just reinforces kind of like, yeah, these like, huh, but hilarious moments and makes it like a really enjoyable ride. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. This reminds me of something. Dave, I think you said not too long ago where every time you you watch this particular movie, it feels like the second time. About and RoboCop, think, yes. Yeah, and I think that is such a such an interesting point. How the second time for this movie is always a better ride, and I don't know. I still find myself getting like surprised by things, or just um, even though I know every single 
inch of this film, just being like, oh, what's going to happen? <laughs> so, yeah, no, no, I, I definitely hear that, Christine. This was, I think, probably my first time watching The Mummy, maybe since I was like nine or ten years old. So it's been a while. And when we started this podcast, we were talking about our favorite movies. We were kind of brainstorming ideas for Butter with that. I kind of decided to just wait off on watching it because I figured one day we would get to it. And I thought, I don't know, it'd be interesting for me to be like, have a fresh set of eyes kind of coming into it after not seeing it since I was a wee lad. And I remember this movie being like a horror movie as a kid, like being absolutely terrified by so much of it. And so, and like the poster is even like the, the DVD cover, VHS cover was like very scary. with like the sand monster and the pyramids. And watching it now, I'm like, oh, like it's interesting how there's still a lot of those kind of horror elements, but it's also a very funny movie, which I did not remember at all and very slapstick in a lot of ways. So that was sort of like a nice surprise uh, revisiting. And, you know, overall, I think it's an incredibly successful movie and it was a really fun ride to revisit and I'm excited to dive deep. Yeah, this is a movie that um, I caught in theaters uh, in 99 uh, with my dad. We went to go see it and uh, pretty much with no with no context. I mean, you know, this is like nascent internet era. So we weren't reading a lot of hype or like a lot of uh, a lot of like criticism or a lot of uh, interpretation of the movie. So we kind of went in blind. And uh, I remember really loving the movie in theaters. Uh, it really scared the hell out of me in one particular sequence that I'm sure we're going to cover. Um, and it was, it was like this, my dad has recalled it today. I texted him that we were doing this episode and he was like, oh man, that was like the first time watching a movie that you said you were really scared. What part uh, was it? I need to know. Uh, it's the part where, <laughs> it's the part where, uh, where, what's his name? Bernard Burns, which is one of the American uh, uh, treasure seekers, has his glasses knocked off and is being stalked by the mummy in this blurred vision. And at the time I wore glasses every day. So I, I felt like, what a realistic portrayal of a very reasonable fear. I will lose my glasses while being stalked by a mummy someday. <laughs> and this will be how it is. And I'll be at a disadvantage. And I was very afraid. Uh, the rest of the movie though, I found to be like such a romp and such a like fun body action film that, or action adventure film specifically, that uh, I was so taken by it. And it was also a movie that was on TV all of the time while I was growing up. So I, I absorbed this movie at least in, in the sum of its parts m more than like 15 times by now but it had been a while it had been a couple of years since i revisited it and i revisited it this past week twice and found that uh i still really adore this movie it's a lot of fun it's one of the best like uh, action adventure blockbusters of the 1990s and really deserves its place on the shelf in that regard I did feel, though, for the first time, maybe because of waning nostalgia, that it is a little bit too long. Interesting. Though though I, I don't know what to cut because everything is narratively necessary. All of the scenes make sense as far as the trajectory of the narrative and the arc and everything, but I felt it was a little bit too long, um, maybe by about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, so I'm looking forward to discussing that and what I think maybe stood out as slowing this movie down. But otherwise, it is a freight train of action adventure that can't be missed. It's a great movie. Yeah, Dave, I think you're right. I think it it's about two hours and five minutes, if I remember. Yeah, my 204, 205, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm so glad to hear that y'all have 
positive feelings and positive memories of this movie, uh, I would have been heartbroken otherwise. <laughs> I also feel like um, you might, you could even lie and like actually hate this movie, but you're just like, nah, Sam loves this too much, but I, you know what? I'll never know. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, so this movie is, you know, I always like to say that my favorite movie is Big Fish and, and, and it is because I think that movie speaks to inner me, my soul, but like this the mummy is probably like it is the movie the film i go to when i'm feeling upset um it's just so much fun and it was a movie that i ruined the vhs tape for because i watched it so much i owned it on um dvd i had like the the three collection not tomb of the dragon emperor i don't fuck around with that one but it was uh Mummy, Mummy Returns, and then The Scorpion King, which I loaned Alana. I don't know, Alana, if you're listening, I don't know if you ever watched it, honestly. Um, but Alana had it for a while. But then uh, last year, I bought it as a digital copy. That's the only movie. Now it's a little bit different, but that was the only movie that I had every version of. And rightly so. I mean, this movie is just for me forever. I what I have really appreciated like this past year or so is like a sudden mummy resurgence where I'm seeing a lot of people online talking about it, which at first um, I was really excited about. And I think I remember like in a past episode, I said that my soulmate is someone who loves the mummy as much as I do. I have a correction. The longer this went on and the, like the more people were talking about the mummy, the more like people were saying how much they loved it and everything. I was like, I feel threatened and um, it can't be. There was actually this one TikTok. I don't know if I sent this to the group or not, but um, it was like, what's the scene uh, that was so good you forgot it was acting? And they brought up the scene that I talk about from The Mummy Returns all the time after uh, Rick kills the Scorpion King and then Imhotep runs in going, no! Um, that felt like identity theft and um, I won't have it anymore. So I've learned a lot about myself in the past year when it comes to the mummy as well. Um, but I feel entirely overwhelmed by this movie and talking about it. So I tried to narrow it down just a little bit into um, why I love it so much. And, and the two things I came up with were... Um, I personally think that the movie for 1999, for what it is, is pretty feminist. And then also, I think it's the perfect combination of comedy, horror, and adventure action. Um, but when it comes to feminism, I know that this sounds a little strange. Dave, I had mentioned this to you and you were very um, skeptical, I remember. Well, I <laughs> I believe my initial reaction was you, you claimed that it's a feminist film. And my response was, I, I think if I'm to portray, portray it verbatim would have been, how so? Yeah, that was it. <laughs> um, but go on. Well, I, you know, I want to see what you guys think first. Like, obviously, I think so since I'm bringing it up. But, you know, the reality is there's literally one one woman in the entire movie. Well, I guess that's not so. But, like, one woman who has the the screen for most of the show. So how can a movie be feminist if there's really only one central female character? Although, but, 
go ahead. Imhotep's love, or no, or she was the Pharaoh's wife, and then yes. she got had an affair Mistress, with yeah. Imhotep. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, she sets everything in motion. Like she is probably the most pivotal, pivotal character in the whole movie. And is uh, yeah played by the uh, the actress who plays Marta in Arrested Development from season really? one. Really? Oh, oh my god! That's actress. Right. Um, and also, yeah, you know, it's it's a funny thing where I mean, uh, this uh, this mistress of the Pharaoh is covered in a sort of like elaborate paint pattern, um, such that like if it were ever smudged by another man's hands, then it would be obvious. Uh, and it has the line at the beginning: "For their love, they are willing to risk life itself." And it's like, yeah, but be careful of the smudging. Like, you can avoid this still if you're careful. I know. But, but yes, yeah. No, but like, I love that you brought that up because I think about that every single time. But I also, because I am who I am, what about like going to the bathroom? Like, do you have to like get touched <laughs> up every single time? I, there's a lot of holes in this story, um, with Seti the First. You've got some issues, but anyway, right, yeah. Um, so, so sure, a, a woman is a catalyst of the whole movie. Um, but, you know, just kind of like first thoughts, thinking about this the mummy as a feminist movie agree disagree what are you thinking i don't know that i would describe it as a feminist movie in the sense that its objective is feminism Uh, i think it definitely features a lot of feminist undertone that is uh really sewn into a lot of character development that is really impressive and also you know all of this for establishing context i'm a cis hetero white man talking about feminism uh (laughs) but but I, I think there. Uh, my initial criticism to that, <clears throat> when you brought it up, Sam, was that my mind immediately went to the fact that Evie is at one point uh, functionally, as far as the narrative structure goes, a damsel in distress, a quote damsel in distress, to the point that it's said in the movie. But this movie subverts that too, because she is a character who, in the midst of this rising problem where Emotep has. Uh, the risen mummy is conf- is allow- is imagining her to be a stand-in, sacrificial stand-in for his uh, his lost love in Aksuna Moon uh, via this reincarnation ceremony and so on. And everyone is aware of that and they're all trying to fight the mummy. But she is the one who says like, look, I'm going to go with him. You guys figure this out. While I am away, I'm distracting him. I am playing a role in making this work. Uh, and then in the end, it, it is a damsel in distress scenario where she has to be quote unquote rescued. But she's the one saving their asses at the time that that rescue occurs. If you really watch the third half of the movie, uh, or third uh, third act of the movie, so it really it sets up a lot of those tropes, and then kind of cleverly knocks them down in a way that is very surprisingly tasteful and thoughtful for a movie of its era and for an action movie in general. Uh, it's not like a movie that passes the Bechdel test. It doesn't wear all of this on its sleeve or anything, but it, but it's there. So I would say that that's a uh, strength of the movie. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, I think I would agree with a lot of what you brought up, Dave. Um, when I was watching it, and I was present when Dave and Sam were having this conversation. So I went into this viewing of The Mummy kind of thinking about uh, Sam's point. And it's sort of, I was, I think I admire the, I guess, tone, script, kind of falls into both categories of kind of have your cake and eat it too, where you can sort of have this throwback feature, swashbuckling action movie while also acknowledging like some problematic issues with it. Like Rick O'Connell has a line that says, um, you know, yeah, it's a damsel in distress situation. Like kind of, there's, I think some words poking fun at its own structure, its own mm-hmm. sort of history, um, while also enjoying 
all the tropes and all the you know formulaic uh, parts of kind of like a Indiana Jones type movie. Well, looking at it with sort of a more you know 1999 sort of lens, which I thought was um, pretty cleverly done by the script, and is one of the more self-aware movies I've ever seen. Like ever, this movie knows exactly what it is. Uh, down to down to the point, Connor. That as you bring up, it is utilizing, but then through its utilization, then surprisingly subverting a lot of established tropes of that genre, without it being annoying, right? Or like meta, or just I feel like some you know, an idea like this would be taken way too out of hand in like 2021. Like someone mm-hmm. would try way too hard to do it, and it has just the lightest of touches to make it super effective in 1999. And Rachel Weiss is just so fun to watch as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she brings uh, like a wonderful energy to the role and like, and I think is compelling as like a character that, that can jump into action and like throw a punch and also can like solve a, you know, a tomb mirror problem, like figure out, yeah, how to, have light bounce between mirrors to illuminate the space. And I think, you know, I think a, the, a wonderful moment is when she's like drunk and she's like, I'm a librarian. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How does a, a place like me end up in a girl like this? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's it. And it like, I think it like sort of has this sort of like tone of, sort of affable lady you know just like oh but but she's got more depth to her and she also it's it's a comedy role and I think Rachel Weiss just embraces that so so well and like every line she delivers is is really uh, a pleasure and fun to to watch because I'm she's <laughs> yeah. yeah she's a, I mean she's a very good actress when she's it both in this and also in other like kind of like more dramatic films, but er, any other comedy I've seen her in, it feels pretty awkward or clumsy. So I, I just think she was kind of reading the room and really, really perfectly understood as does every actor in this film, what they were making and really brings it to life in some interesting ways. Yeah. I mean that actually, so I want to say definitely a lot more about Evie, but um Dave, I I can't help but with what you just said, um, something else that I love about this movie is just the chemistry with the cast. I think so much of this movie works because of the actors and because it's so clear. I mean, you know, Rachel and Brendan having that just like magnetism that is just so believable and so good but even like jonathan when you throw him in the mix ardeth bay um even fucking imhotep i mean i think that they all just play off each other so well (laughs) i mean imhotep barely says anything in english i don't even think he does but like hey but it's but he's still hamming it up like everyone is hamming it up and so I think there's a, I think you said it, Sam, there's a wonderful rec- collective recognition of what type of movie they're all performing in. And I think tonally, like, people embrace, like, and I think we, I'm sure, we're, like, I don't want to jump the gun here, but Brendan Fraser is so wonderfully, like, watchable and, like, 100% knows what movie he's in and is just, like, 
wants to just take you on this ride. And I'm so happy to see, like, I hear we're in a, a Frasier sans come like the be, the beginnings of a Frasier sans. Wait, what has he, he been in recently? That's been that lot. Well, I, well, he just got cast in a Scorsese film. Yeah. He's going to okay. be, yeah, he's going to be in the new Scorsese movie. He was just in the new Soderbergh, Soder, Soderbergh movie. And he was great. He was like playing like a, intimidating guy like guy from the mafia and he with also a slight like kind of winking kind of Soderbergh-y comedic presence and so he really nails that that balance uh and I'm I'm waiting oh he's gonna be in the new Darren Aronofsky movie <laughs> so he's got a lot of shit that's coming up what the hell is going on what <laughs> It's just a lot of interesting intersections. Okay, I mean, yeah, that does sound like a uh, uh, that does sound like a, a, a Fraser Sans in a sense. We can celebrate in a Fraser Sans. This is the only thing I want in life, honestly. I just want him to be happy and to succeed. That's it. If that happens, great. I could die. Then it's all fine. Everything else will have been for naught. It's all good. But, you know, speaking of like the two main characters here. So, yeah, we have Brendan Fraser as Rick O'Connell, um, the very Indiana Jones-esque type of character. And then we have Evelyn, uh, Rachel Weiss, who I don't know. I don't know how y'all perceive me, but like as a child, I always wanted to be her. Um, as an adult, I think that for me, she, whoever wrote that question on the whiteboard uh, was so on point today with the, what fictional character do you relate to the most? Because mine is 100% Evie. And if I can accomplish one thing other than Brendan Fraser being happy, one thing in life is to to be like her because I like stuff that I admire of her so much is um, that she's just, she's true to her like authentic self and true to her heart. She, she loves doing research and she loves learning about Egypt, but she wants to be a part of it. She wants to be in the action. She has this thirst for adventure and, you know, she's the one who's like, okay, well, we had this map to Hamanatra. Let's go. She's the one who... Uh, Wait, the Hamanatra? <laughs> the Hamanatra. <laughs> um, and she's the one who negotiates for Rick's release um, after he was <laughs> hung. Um, you Did know, you read she, the trivia about that? Yeah, yeah. That's fucking wild so, also, yeah. he like fucked up his back in real well, life right yeah for some context is that well no that was a different film but in this movie because of the one shot where it follows brendan fraser being hung uh in this prison instead of like cutting to um like a side shot or like any other perspective uh to allow that a stuntman perform it he actually performed it himself but something went awry while they were filming to the point that he was choked out and actually had to be resuscitated Oh, he didn't. Oh, so he fucked up his back and something else. But that, yeah, that's later that on, but yeah. scene, I think, is the most horrifying of like, I think without maybe intentionally being as horrified. Like, yeah, the fact that they do a hanging one shot is like terrifying. Super and, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. That's and like from a, from a yeah uh, practical effect standpoint, very effective and very impressive. But um Knowing that tr that he was hurt doing it uh, makes it even more horrifying and unsettling. 
Yeah. And honestly, it sounds like the whole filming was pretty rough. Um, the cast was like con constantly being like bit by poisonous animals that they had to be like rushed to medical. Um, Where I, was it filmed? I think it was actually filmed... Um, in a desert, uh, where exactly? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think like the, the local, the local insect population really wreaked havoc on them. And again, like just how grateful I am that this movie exists at all. Also one other little bit of trivia as far as the, uh, the, the, uh, fauna are concerned of the shooting location. Apparently Kevin J. O'Connor playing Benny, um, for for whatever reason was particularly hated by the camels <laughs> which is kind they of they knew funny. what character kind of character he was playing maybe that's so good i love that right so you know back to evie so she you know she is she's the driving force of the movie i would say you know she takes the lead in the dig she's voluntarily going with imhotep to save uh, the rest of her crew. I also like that, you know, she's not a lawful good. She will, you know, she will do what she has to do in order to get what she wants. She's okay with going along with Rick's bet. It's refreshing to, to see a, a character like this who is not perfect. I mean, you know, the reason why she's such a catalyst is not just because she has this thirst for adventure, but it's because she fucks up. She's the one who opens the Book of the Dead. She's the one who reads the incantation that brings Imhotep back to life. And I think that she recognizes that and refuses to leave, refuses to, to keep herself safe because she has to fix it. And so, you know, I, I think that that bravery courage um to to an unmeasurable degree um yeah definitely an interesting character in terms of like seeing everything through to the end and, and another interesting thing too that i've seen pointed out in multiple articles in my research for, over this past like two weeks has been um a, a lot of people pointing out that like at the end of the day like what you might expect her role to have been is like uh sort of like coalescing with rick at the end and it's like this whole thing where like oh we now understand that rick was our protagonist as this like magnetic you know male action hero but at the end of the day it's it's not like he's she's his prize is that she you know she happens to have fallen in love with this man but in addition to that it's still very deeply and firmly dedicated to her beliefs her interests and her advancing a very legitimate career uh, albeit having made some mistakes that could have ended the world. But but yeah, it's it, it's a really interesting character that is way more developed than a lot of written off um, kind of like action side piece women that we are treated to in other adventure, uh, action adventure films. Some of which like, I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think is a fantastic film and has a very strong female lead in that sense too. Um, but by contrast to a lot of other ones, yeah, that's that's something you only get glimpses of in genuinely good movies. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, I think that Rick is just written so well, too. Um, in my notes here, I have he drinks his respect women juice. And, you know, I think <laughs> that um, he never underestimates Evie from the get go. And that's just something that I I I love so much that Stephen Summers did this uh, character in this way. And something else that I love about Rick is that in my notes here, I have, you know, he, he struggles, he fails, he, he, he's scared. There's moments where he's like, I actually 
don't think I'm going to make it out of this. And he's the one who's trying to run away after Imhotep comes back to life. And Evie's like, hey, hey, hey no, 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 we got to stay. Um, and he just loves and cares so deeply in his own, you know, masculine way, but we still see it. It's still so obvious. And, um, you know, I also think it does a, a good job of showing how there are different intelligence, um, different forms of intelligence in the world. You know, like Evie, I think they're both very people smart, but in different reasons. So, you know, Evie is book smart, obviously, but, she, you know, whether this is just Rachel Vice or, or, or what have you, but, you know, Evie is just so charming that people are just ready to say, oh, okay. Or, or just like ready to deal with her, ready to say yes. Um, whereas Rick is like very... Um, he's adventure and like logistics smart. So, um, I'm thinking in particular when they're talking about the book of the dead, um, and they're talking about Hamanoptera, he, he's like, I, I know it because it, it's treasure. And then when, um, they have the, um, the, the moment where he's talking about the, the Magi and he's like, they're desert people. They don't want this the the gold or whatever's here they're trying to protect this land so there's clearly something else at play here so i just i just i love that i love that so much i think this a, a strength of the mummy is that it does a really great job of using action to define character instead of talking or you know people doing things that's how we learn about them i think about benny a lot in the scene where he's being confronted by the mummy and first he has a crucifix and then he pulls out all these other religious icons to try to appease whatever spirit this is. And I think that's such a great way to show like a lack of backbone, a cowardice of how he'll do anything to survive. And so it makes sense that he'll team up with the ugly mummy to survive. Also, Kevin J. O'Connor, I mean, does an, an incredible job with this role. I mean, he becomes this sort of like likable like against our better instincts, likable villainous character um, and does such a good job as the movie progresses, as he becomes more uh, because he offers himself basically as a servant to Emotep when he is first emerging. And uh, as such, it's kind of like, you know, confined to the will of Emotep, this risen mummy. And we see him going about these beats and like, you know, he's a pretty treasonous and self-interested person, but we even see him like growing to like wince and become pretty disgusted with his own involvement in in a situation where he would normally be kind of like, you know, taking advantage, but is is recognizing that in, in very subtle ways that I don't think is part of the script. I think it's just Kevin J. O'Connor doing a great job with the character, highlighting a sense of emergent doubt in in not only what is happening and what one has become invested in, but like, should I be doing this? I mean, at the end, he does still he's still self-interested and he's still trying to grab gold and everything, but there are little, little glimpses and little, little, little shimmers here and there. They're, they're playing off of each other is hysterical. Every time I can't help but laugh. I think particularly when Benny is like looking for the, the key again and mm. they're in that office <laughs> and <laughs> Rick just throws the chair at That chair throw is amazing. <laughs> so good. That is one of the most unexpected of all like aspects of the movie that are supposed to be like, oh, thing popping up, mummy, mummy jumping out of coffin, all of this stuff. The chair throw is probably top five most unexpected moments. <laughs> he whips that chair like it's a like it's a boomerang. He smashes him with it, and it's incredible. It is. It is. So, you know, 
I love that we spent some time talking about Evie and Rick. They're the best parts of this movie for me. But, you know, I mentioned before also why I like this. It's because of the, the combination of comedy, horror, and action. So let's talk about some of our favorite scenes because I have so many, including that chair scene. That chair scene's a real standout. The whole situation on the boat. Like, the characters were introduced to the fact that, like, things are just on fire and Brendan Fraser is just throwing people and himself into the water. (laughs) It like makes me think that I'm on like a, like an, like a, an amusement ride or something like, like, or some like universal, like maybe I'm thinking of Indiana Jones and like the idea of being on a set that's exploding and things are uh like there's water splashing everywhere but things are just taken to the most extreme level in those series of scenes on the boat that just make me smile and make me laugh (laughs) there's just dudes getting thrown in and out of fires all over the place people getting thrown in and out of fire and in and out of water and it's like kind of the movie recognizes the most sort of fundamental elements of action, fire and water. And so it like recognizes that at the end of the day, if an action adventure movie introduces like those two elements, the movie has reached its audience. (laughs) So it's gotta be elemental. Yes. uh, Yes. Well, earth and sand and he creates like a sand tornado. So there you have it all covered. And also, the, like, the plagues. Like, I mean, this is a movie that... Uh, one thing I will say is that some of the CG has not aged well. True. Um, True. <laughs> uh, specifically, the the Risen Mummy at first. Once he becomes, like... Once Arnold Vosloo is digitally manipulated as, like, a, a, a physical actor, you get some pretty great stuff. But uh, but when it's, it's this kind of, like, n- you know, fully rendered CG mummy, I'm not very convinced most of the time. Even it, even then, wasn't all that convinced with the limitations of CG, which hasn't helped with all these years of hindsight. Um, and also, yeah, it 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 does a great job though of like occasionally just not going for that at all. Like whole sequences of like the the initial rush uh, where we meet Rick and uh, and Benny when they're uh, part of this foreign legion defending themselves against um, you know this oncoming uh, wave of people trying to defend Hominoptera. Some really awesome, like like t- very traditional action editing as far as like shooting that kind of like sword and sandals sort of like picture where like th- there is a lot of room for these individual shots to breathe. It's not quick cuts. It's, a lo- it's an allowance of like things to really germinate and really define the momentum of its choreography. And also like another thing specifically that's a really a really great moment within that whole sequence. And uh, one of the many really cool moments of just like very thoughtful editing is when we first before we meet Rick or Benny, we we see this legion uh you know posed against this wall defending themselves against this oncoming horde and it pans from the the commander as he like gives up and is retreating and runs away. Um, and it just follows him as he's running away past all these incidental soldiers and then rests finally on Benny and, and O'Connell to have this reveal of who they are with the established context of what's going on. Uh, so a lot of really great editing flares in terms of its pacing. Uh, there's a really great scene also where Evie first discovers the map and is unfolding it. And as she unfolds it, it cuts seamlessly into a scene where she's showing it to someone else. 
So there's a lot of fluidity to this movie that's really, really well paced and really well edited. I think also along the lines of uh, not always relying on uh, like a CGI horror effect. And this is totally uh, an idea that was brought, like I totally heard this on We Hate Movies. Uh, so it's there. They did a good episode on it, yeah. But yeah, oh my God, that whole episode is so funny. Um, but they pointed out the scene when Imhotep is about to basically try to whisk away Evie uh, and sacrifice her instead of showing Imhotep like go walking through the wall or do something weird. It's just he's approaching the door and then you see sand coming out of the keyhole. And it's like that's an effective way of showing the power of this character without relying on something that could look like a body dissolving into sand or, or some sort of a CG effect that could have been used. But it was just, it, it's very effective, but it's very simple at the same time. And I, yeah, when they mentioned that, I was like, oh yeah, that that makes total sense. Yeah, the reliance on practical effects is, is really good in this movie, which I think makes the CG a little bit jarring because it is, when it's used, it's used as a spectacle uh, whereas these practical effects and moments are are conveyed as like more intimate, like snapshot moments, or just like I don't know, it, it, it it's it does over rely on CG for the big moments, I think, but it does use a lot of good practical effects. But that also adds to the sort of comedic nature of some scenes, like the unhinged jaw, like is so CG, and I. But I love it because it looks so bad. <laughs> when he eats the scarab. Oh, that's actually but really I, good. That's really well that's done. That's a good one, yeah. All of the CG in his cheek when you can see his skin and the, the I don't know, what am I looking for? Ligament? No, no, whatever. It's gross. And then when he sees the beetle moving through his cheek and then chews on it, very, very terrifying. But other times the CG just looks funny and I... I think it's sort of a moment of sort of levity and also like, yeah, this movie wasn't made on a huge budget. Also, 1999 is a, like we talked about in The Matrix is this wonderful moment in movie making time when like it's like, what do we go for? Do we go heavy CG? Do we go like do we just try to do all practical? And so it's a nice little time capsule also in a way of like watching a movie try to handle both and. Yeah, do some CG that doesn't really work. <laughs> that, I think, is my issue with it, though, is that it was so low budget and these were set up as such grand scenes when we're over, when we're really utilizing CGI that I, I think they were convinced that it, it wasn't like a tongue-in-cheek, like, look at the hokiness of this. I think they genuinely thought this looks amazing and they were wrong because of the But budget. does that undercut the enjoyment you can derive, like, watching it, you know, 20 after, years After later. all these years, for me, it does. Uh, I think I was initially convinced for many years, but now watching it with all the, the you know, the benefit of like HD transfers and everything, uh, other than the scarabs, like the waves of scarabs, which still feel very tactile and convincing, I think all the CG feels very unvoluminous. Uh, I agree And not in an intentional way. Yeah, I agree. Everything with the scarabs is so well done. Even the scarabs... Crawling under the skin is so... It's pretty good. ...horrifyingly effective. I think it's just when it swings for the fences, it didn't have the technology for that yet, or the budget for that yet, 
or a combination of the two. And it does do enough practical effect things that I think it's it, it's it's you know it's a criticism, but it doesn't damn the movie or define the movie in any way. I think the giant sand face is pretty funny. <laughs> and when he opens his mouth and the sand wind creature opens its mouth, like I, I know that wasn't supposed to be funny, but that added to my enjoyment of That's... Uh, rewatching it. Oh my god, that sandstorm mouth is <laughs> what? <laughs> Did I ever send you guys? So I one night during like like lockdown, I had really gotten mentally unhinged and I downloaded Snapchat only for this purpose of using this one particular filter on the mummy. And I have a few videos where it's like the the squished, like big eyes, big teeth, and it's like a chipmunk voice. Um, I use the filter on that part of the movie and it worked on the sand face. I, I have, I'll send it to you guys after this because <laughs> it literally killed me. I, I'm a ghost now. I, okay, I'm gonna, uh, I do think there are moments where it, the movie recognizes, maybe not the, like, the full extent of how ridiculous the CG looks, but, like, the moment where, like, the mummy is yelling, like, like, doing a roar, and then, uh, and then Brendan Fraser's character roars back, like, I, there are moments like that where, Maybe that wasn't being like, let's recognize and laugh at the fact that our, you know, mummy looks really bad in this moment. But it but Brendan Fraser's performance is a wonderful like response and brings this nice playfulness to some of this hokier looking stuff. Yeah, although, I mean, think about if it was really well CG rendered, how much more impactful that moment would be if you weren't distracted by it looking not very good. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard. I totally agree. And I, I really see what you mean about the CGI. But like, to me, this movie's perfect. But it it does, it does add a little bit more hilarity to it when you're watching it back, which like, I don't know. I appreciate like That's when we're fair. watching movies like RoboCop and like, even I, when I was watching Rambo the other day, like there were parts that made me laugh out loud, which I definitely don't think was the purpose back in the day. But it's just, it's what makes these movies endearing and what makes them like long lasting because they still have these really interesting and, and kind of beautiful moments. Like uh, what? It's like watching movies made like 60 years ago and being like, this is a wonderful moment where like directors and like people responsible for special effects were trying to figure shit out. Like, and they just couldn't make it work, but it's just a wonderful little glimpse at a particular period of like movie time. Uh, and I think this movie kind of captures 1999 <laughs> in a very singular way, both in like, um, yeah, stuff I was reading about the mummy in its like kind of representing the like beginning of the end of this sort of like action adventure genre that then gotten taken over by superhero store. Like it was like this sort of like marked kind of the beginning of the end for movies that movies like it. Yeah. Well, you know, so one of the mm. questions I had for you guys tonight was, can this movie be considered a classic modern day classic? just classic in general. What do you think about that? Especially because this is a remake of something that people consider a classic. 
I would say since most Americans living in 1999 saw The Mummy, um, I think you'd have to say that it's a classic. That's kind of how I sort of see it. I think it's, you know, we see the bumper sticker that you have on your car, Sam. Like every Thanks few years, it's like this movie becomes culturally relevant again. The Frasier love is seeming only to just be restarting again. So I would say that this, and I feel like people who I talk to look back very fondly on this movie, even if they haven't seen it in a while. So I would, I would certify it as a late nineties classic. And certainly in my mind, a film, when I think of like the video rental days, blockbuster, I think of that poster, you know, I think it's a movie that has, even though I've only seen it maybe three or four times in my life, it has stuck with me. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that like, it depends on how one defines a classic. If one defines a classic as something that is like a recurrent influence uh, a recurrent media influence throughout one's life that they keep returning to with fondness or with growing or or even waning appreciation as long as they return to it then yeah it's a touchstone and it's then in that sense a classic and in in that sense at least for me personally yeah i would say the mummy absolutely is yeah i mean i think that it is especially these days when people it sounds like when when this is brought up people have nothing but love for it when it's funny that it's it's coming up now so often um not saying that i'm responsible for it but i did tweet to funko pops a long time ago and i was like hey you know what pops you should have you should have the mummy and then they made them i'm not saying that i'm responsible for it but i also am saying that i am directly responsible for those pops existing just saying it and your promo code butter with that at funkopop.com it won't work it won't work (laughs) um yeah you know what i think that this movie has like legacy potential um even the mummy returns i think it's significantly inferior sequel but evie's wardrobe give me yeah um but even that one you know it, it has its moments too you know for me some of the the scenes that i think have really cemented the movie as something that people can return back to. Dave, you mentioned this one, but um, when Imhotep is first reanimated and he's hunting, he's hunting that American explorer and he takes his tongue. That is- I look my eye, I look my eye, It's really great horror acting. It's actually like Sam, as you mentioned before, it's, it, it's a movie that is like, a perfect like I've I've seen a lot of movies try to navigate the tightrope that is maintaining an action adventure movie that is comical but also horrific, and this movie is doing goddamn somersaults across that tightrope. It's incredible. It nails it. Yeah, and you know what other scene I think that I I can't believe that it was in this movie. It's after so um, Anaxina Moon um, she kills herself because she's being caught um, after she and Imhotep kill the Pharaoh. And Imhotep is trying to bring her back to life and he gets caught by the Pharaoh's guards. And then they mummify Imhotep and his guards while they're alive. I that forgot was, about this. Scene. Yeah. Yeah. Fucked up and you hear them screaming. You're watching them like withering on the table. And you you see Imhotep get his um tongue get cut off. You see him like being wrapped. Yeah, but that's the thing. This movie is really an amazingly, an amazing like towing the line of PG-13 movie. Uh, because of like the strength of its editing and knowing how to imply violence. Like there's that scene as we're, we were just discussing, where like it, it does this nice 
job of like set blocking where we zoom in on Emotep as his tongue is about to be cut out, but then a guy walks into frame blocking it and we just hear him scream. There's uh, the guys who have, uh, the the Americans who have the canopic jars who he's hunting. Um, th- and they're always either like sucked of their essence and like reduced to like these like horrifying, like dehydrated corpses and like mummies. Uh, but it always occurs either off screen or in shadow play. Um, when Anaxuna Moon initially commits suicide because of the promise of the prophecy of resurrection, uh, she does so in silhouette in the shadow. So it really does a great job of being a PG-13 movie that implies the gravity of violence without showing it and pushing it into an R rating. Yeah. Yeah. And then like in the next five minutes, you have these hilarious moments that like, I swear I laugh at every time. Like Christine, you brought this up earlier when the boat is on fire. Um, I put this in my notes because it's, it's a dark moment, but like, seriously, I fucking lose my mind. Um, when, uh, Jonathan is coming in looking for Evie and he knocks the guard into the flames. It is just the, the, the pacing (laughs) and the timing is just so fucking funny. And then even when they find Imhotep, they find his sarcophagus, um, you know, they're, they're digging at the, the the base of Anubis and they're just, yeah, we don't know what we're going to find. They're having this conversation about being mummified and then boom, they hit one thing and everything comes down. It's hysterical. And there's no subtlety to anything. Like speaking of fire, I'm back on the fire point. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Something I noticed twice was whenever they were going into, so the sort of, um, archive library that Evie works in that also has different artifacts. Why are there constant flames to illuminate that space? That is so dangerous for everybody and everything involved in that situation. And twice they walk into that room and they're like, suddenly there are like torches aflame. And it's like, okay, that's terrible. And, and then they fucking burn this ancient priceless map well that's on purpose that is on purpose oh so that the guy's trying to make sure they don't go to habanatra because he's aware of the curse and so on so okay so regardless of whether that was on purpose you're talking about people whose job it is to protect (laughs) like artifacts and priceless things and this is in no way like the movie is in no way going to go into the details of like preservation (laughs) like all of that stuff nor (laughs) am I asking it to but it's just the cavalier use of fire just made me laugh so much (laughs) in like every single moment I think there's even one scene in particular like right at the very beginning when Evie hears a noise and she's like moving through all of the sarcophagus and she like goes to inspect one she literally puts the torch down where it's right next to the sarcophagus she's looking at. I, I was, <laughs> I can't. In another movie, it would be like a comment on like Western exploitation <laughs> of, you know, Egyptian culture in the Middle East, but I don't, <laughs> this movie's definitely not. Not going, going there. Too much to ask. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking also of like character ineptitude, like Oded Fair's character, this member of the Magi. I mean, Jesus Christ. Uh, he's tasked with protecting the secret of Emotep uh, because it is this global threat. Um, and he finds O'Connell like running away from everyone, stranded and alone. And while he while he's alone and he's 
Odette Ferris with six of his armed buddies is just like, eh, the desert will kill him. <laughs> only, only to show up later again and be like, oh man, this guy, all right, for real, this time you've really got to leave. We don't want to kill you, but you've got to go. And then later again is like, Jesus, man, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's doing such a shitty job of protecting this world-threatening secret. It's Man Crush Monday. He was like clearly feeling it. But I, I love... I love his character and the subtle nods that this movie does to the original. So in the original, um, things that remain true is um, Imhotep served the Pharaoh, was in love with Anaxinamun and tries to bring her back to life. Um, he is reanimated and then adopts this new persona named Ardeth Bay. Um, Ardeth Bay is the name of um, Odette mm -hmm. Fair's character. So, you know, there's small little nods that they do that I just love so much. Um, there's one moment in the original, I actually just watched it this weekend, which is why it's like right here, um, where you see a white cat and it's Imhotep's. And he like, it's actually a big thing because a, a dog dies and it, you almost think the cat's responsible. But then in this one, the cat, uh, like Bast is like protector of the underworld. And so like, he's afraid while he's regenerating, he's afraid of the cat. And that's how they kind of beat him back just a little bit. So I, I just, I love those moments, but the you know. The close up of the screaming cat is hilarious. Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about scenes we love, but I also, Dave, hear your point about that the movie runs a little bit long. And if I was to cut, something. I think it would be the bit with Winston. Now I know that Winston, who um, is an old soldier who wants to, who, who is the only survivor of his battalion who was serving there. Um, and all he wants to do is die. He just like drinks a lot. And uh, he's eventually how they get back to Hamanoptera. I know that he's necessary for that plot point, but like, damn, I don't know. That just, it felt weird. I feel like Rick could have known how to fly a plane. That feels like something that he could, a skill set that he could have just had from his days in the Foreign Legion or serving in the war or the Great War or whatever. Yeah, it's one of those moments. That's that specifically, Sam, I'm glad you brought that up, is one moment where I'm like, oh, right, Winston, the drunkard sky captain who is longing for a glorious death. You know what? Maybe we don't need all these characters. Like, it's an ensemble film, and I appreciate what everyone brings to the table until it slows it down, and Winston is an example of that. Yeah. I got to say the plane scene was a reminder of a movie I watched also during the pandemic that this movie is not. And it like, okay, so Sahara starring Matthew McConaughey, I think really wanted to be a bigger budget mummy. No, it has nothing to do with a mummy, but like, like set in the desert, you know, like action adventure, whatever. And it's got this scene where they try to build a plane or they, they do like a, a, uh, like a windsurfing, like desert windsurfing device built out of a plane. And I really think they thought that they were going to like have some wonderful moment, like the, like the plane scene in the mummy and it just didn't work. So I bring this up to say that there it, moments made me think of a lesser movie that was trying to like infuse the energy of the mummy and just couldn't, couldn't get there. And Sahara is an example of that. I mean, I think that's interesting because it's it's to me the most deflated sequence in the film. 
Like we're finding well, out that. He, which is to say, even if the worst scene of the mummy is better than the best scene, in my opinion, of Sahara, then that tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> sure. But but speaking about the mummy and that sequence itself, it it really it slows things down too much. It is it is like I understand the narrative function where uh, Evie is 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 being kidnapped by. um by Imhotep and she actively plays a role in shutting down one of his powers. She goes to kiss him, which uh, distracts him or at least opens his mouth enough that the plane can get out of the sandstorm that he's created. Yeah, everyone's wincing. That's that's what it is. But <laughs> but it's narratively functional. It it shows that Evie, in spite of being in the midst of being kidnapped, is still influencing these situations and that she has some influence over Imhotep uh, as a crucial a crucial person in fulfilling uh, his resurrection prophecy and everything, and how it can be distracted by that. That having been said, the, the whole sequence, yeah, I mean, why don't we just fly to Hopinatra? I mean, why don't we just get this out of the way? Why do we have to learn that he is in his sandstorm powers spinning Evie and Benny in this sandstorm tornado to transport them there? It's like, just, just, just get there. And like, there's also the scene too, where they're traveling to Hopinatra for the first time. And there's all these like, you know, buddy, these really buddy, buddy moments where they're riding the camels for camels for like, I don't know, like seven to 10 minutes. And it's like, I understand you're sewing little like character beats in here, but save me the time and just get there. Uh, these, these were the moments that I'm like, okay, this movie is starting to feel a little bit too long. You know, the the travel moments is something that I think the franchise just suffers from because in the second one, in The Mummy Returns, they have like this whole like dirigible, like under mm -hmm. underlining theme, which is just really fucking weird. So yeah, like my one critique, rethre rethink your transportation, fools. Or at least rethink the pace at which we experience that as an audience. Yeah. 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 I just looked up when the song Sandstorm came out. It came out in 2000. So, like, there was some sort of 1999-2000 obsession with sandstorms. So to answer your question, Dave, why did we need that? We needed it because of sandstorm, the, the sandstorm cultural zeitgeist. <laughs> well, you know, there is something sure. there, though. Because, okay, <laughs> sure. so John Mulaney has that joke where he's like, I thought quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem than it actually is. And like, I grew up thinking that I was going to have to avoid quicksand all the time too, because of like Scooby-Doo and other things like that. Sand is on the brain sometimes. I think you just can't avoid it. You can't get it out of anything. Once it's in yeah. there, it's in there. Yeah. Forever. <laughs> it's rough. It's coarse. It gets everywhere. I just hate it. I hate sand. <laughs> um... Can I give a shout out to one moment I really enjoyed and a character we haven't talked too much about, and that's Jonathan? Yeah. I think John Hanna is such a delightful actor in general. And I I don't know. Dave made a face, but I really like Jonathan in this movie. I thought he just brought a fun energy to it. And the scene that I think just I really enjoyed is when he's trying to get Imhotep invades the fort. He has these zombie, I guess, followers. And so Jonathan says, Oh, I'll go run and start the car. The followers run out front see Jonathan are going to attack him and then they're kind of chanting Imhotep in this, you know, dull tone. And then he joins them with this, makes this goofy face and convinces them and then goes on. I thought that was just a really wonderful moment from a character that I thought was pretty entertaining that I just wanted to put out there. It's just one of those things where he is a character that is exclusively about delivering comedic relief, 
which which is fine. But in a movie where all of the other characters change, he is literally one note the entire film. He's the same joke over and over and over again. So I got tired of Jonathan, even like my first time seeing it within about 30 minutes, to be honest. <laughs> I think he he doesn't <clears throat> he doesn't bring anything to it other than this like notion of like uh, treasure hunting for the the like or or like cultural anthropology, but only for this the sake of like kind of self-interest and greed. But we get that through other characters also. So for him to get as much of a spotlight as he does without changing or doing much more than he does throughout the entire film, I think is a little bit of a waste of time. Yeah, I, I could definitely agree. But I also think that he presents like an interesting foil to Evie because, you know. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Back in that time, women weren't really allowed to do many things. And like clearly here showing that that's not necessarily so. Yeah, I guess I recognize the function, but wish for more characterization instead of him being the same joke oh, the whole no. time for the purpose of filling those plot holes. I would be interested to see if Benny and Jonathan were wrapped up in the same character. Oh. Like, I would just be curious to see what that would do. Yeah, I mean, that could I, mean, I thought Jonathan was going to die, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. He made it through the whole movie. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a criticism I've heard before is like, what if Jonathan was the one beca- who, because of his greed, turns on them in the end? And like, you know, that might have been a little less endearing, but it might have been more interesting. Um, so I don't know. Every good movie has its flaws, too. Um, Sam will be accepting no criticism. <laughs> I know, that's, that's, right. that's what I told Connor earlier today. <laughs> well, you know, folks, that's most of what I had prepared to talk about the mummy. And I think we've talked about it um, a great deal. But is there anything else that we didn't get to that you'd like to make sure we talk about? I thought the book looked really cool. This like silver, like dark silver, like metal metallic book of the dead. Like I thought the props set design, I thought generally all around are pretty strong. I looked it up as we were talking and they filmed in Marrakesh, Morocco. Oh, thank um, you. Because of uh, you know political instability at the time in Egypt. And I was just on Wikipedia. It said that Morocco actually worked out to be a good choice because Marrakech is a less high-tech city than Cairo. So it's easier to dress it up in this kind of 20s style. One final scene I want to call attention to, which is perhaps like one of my favorite Rick moments is um, at the very end when he's trying to rescue Evie and he's dealing with all of these fucking mummies. And <laughs> there's a one moment where he just stands up with the sword and he's trying to like, you know, impress Evie just a little bit. And he's like, eh, mummies. And then immediately gets attacked. I genuinely laugh out loud every single time. So love Rick O'Connell. Love him dearly. Yeah, he's a... He's a really fun male action lead and in the sense that he's taken down a peg often. And it, it, and as you mentioned before, is afraid, is um, is someone who is apprehensive at times, is occasionally self-interested, but not in a way that demeans uh, our endearment to his character. So yeah, very rich character. And, and Brendan Fraser knocks it out of the park. I think everyone in this movie, like I said, knows exactly what movie they're in and acts it uh, perfectly and portrays their character uh, types and archetypes perfectly. I think it's, I th- yeah, I think it's one of those, it's again, just one of those rare moments where everyone knew exactly the tone and timber and design of the movie they were in. Not only down to the acting, but also Connor, as you mentioned, the production design, um, which is fantastic throughout 
almost all of this movie as far as its practical effects are concerned and their use. CG, again, as I mentioned before, can be a little bit clunky, but a lot of it is pretty cool. And it's also a movie that very, very, very baldly and very nakedly cribs stuff from Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Indiana Jones film, but does so in a way that is, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't feel like a ripoff. It feels like obvious self-aware homage. Um, I, I'm thinking of the thing with like um, the warden when he's brought along and they mentioned like, careful, there's bugs down here. And he has the bugs. I hate bugs. It's like, I, I hear Harrison Ford is snakes. <laughs> Jock, I hate snakes. And also uh, Hominoptera revealing itself when the sun rises is pretty much beat for beat, him revealing it through that artifact in the tomb in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I don't find them distracting or distasteful. I think it's just, you know, pretty good, clean fun via homage. So I think it's it's pretty tastefully shuffled in a way that necessarily incorporates that as a convention of the genre as much as it does the mummy concept and, and breathes new life into it in fun and adventurous ways and inventive ways. So... Yeah, I've really, I've, I, I, I struggle to find anything to complain about with this movie other than it feeling maybe about twenty minutes too long, and even that stuff that I think slows the movie down narratively makes sense. So pretty much across the board, it's a pretty ironclad, very well made and very well, very keenly self aware movie that I really enjoy every time. So it was fun to talk about, and I've been looking forward to it for a long time. Thanks, Dave. Me too. I do have one final question for everyone. And this one, um, I'll be interested to hear your takes. So 2017, they remade The Mummy again with Tom Cruise. And it was, it was actually originally going to be cast in it at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was Leonardo DiCaprio. They had like a lot of different people in mind. So Tom Cruise in a reboot of the Mummy series, it was supposed to be a lot darker, um, part of the 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 dark rebirth of the Universal Monsters, and it tanked. My question is, did it tank because it was just not good? Or are people still too partial to 1999 and felt like, I personally took offense that they were going to try to redo it. Um, I felt like it was too soon, but what do you think? I feel like that movie has many issues. Biggest one being trying to have like an Avengers moment in the Iron Man of its universe of like Russell Crowe is Dr. Jekyll and he has this cabinet full of vampire teeth and all these dark universe objects and announcing that this universe is existing, that Johnny Depp's the Invisible Man, like trying to have your MCU moment from the get-go. So I think that weighs a ton of the movie down on top of it just not being a very good movie in general. So I don't know how much of it for me plays into like the mummy, like trying to make them a new mummy movie but rather just as a on its own kind of just failing spectacularly yeah i think that's the thing because i don't see this as a reboot of night i don't see that 2017 film as a reboot of 1999's the mummy i see it as a reboot of 1932's universal mummy in the same way that the 1999 one was um it just so happened that the 2017 version sucks as a film what else can you say really it's it's not i don't think that's the 99 mummy's fault via nostalgia i think that's making a terrible film and it's sucking so that's just me i thought that movie was pretty roundly horrible and it was their second attempt at launching a dark universe because there was dracula untold a few years before right it ends with charles dance saying and let the game begin that there was no more game 
game was over. Yeah, it's like you make one movie, and if people like it, then you start building the universe. But like putting all of those expectations into a shitty movie, being like, and then we will expand. And it's like no one wants expansion of your piece of shit. But Tom Cruise has no business being in a mummy movie. Like, no. Well, and I think what's happening now is we have The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss and Blumhouse sort of taking their low-budget horror approach to rebooting these classic monsters with, like, a 21st century kind of mindset, I think could be a recipe for success. Like, taking it back to more of its horror roots, keeping it sort of simpler, um, I think could be incredibly successful because The Invisible Man was certainly a great start to the potential for a reintroduction of these sort of classic stories into the cinema canon. Yeah, and that's the thing where I don't think that, if, for example, like because it has that darker and more like current tone uh, and is more uh, more self-aware, modern readaptation of that old material and reboot. I, I That's why I think The Mummy of 1999 does, didn't have an impact on the 2017 one because it's not as though they're going for rebooting a campy adventure reimagining reimagining of the original property it was just like this very dour and like you know uber serious version of that original story blown out into a modern context yeah i mean i definitely took offense to it i thought it was way too soon but i also think that you know so smart to start with the invisible man and particularly on a low budget and you know if i was to give them advice maybe Try the creature next. Try things that we haven't seen in a while. That's, I don't know. I think that's why Invisible Man worked too, because it's a story that we haven't seen. What was it like? Hollow Man? Hollow Man with Kevin Bacon? Boy, that movie's rough. Kevin Bacon. Rough, rough. No business in Hollow Man. Yeah, neither did did anyone else the way they made that movie. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, anyway... Sam, what do you what do you think of the sequels? I think the sequels to this movie are bad. Um, I think they get progressively worse because I also lump like the Scorpion King in there and like mm-hmm, yeah. Um, the Mummy Return. All right, I'm going to say something controversial here, and I <laughs> apologize to anyone who disagrees. When you bring in children to a story, you fucking ruin it. You ruin the dynamic. Everything is different, and so. They brought a kid into the Mummy Returns, and it it and it made it more campy, in a bad way. Uh, it reminds me, actually, in that way, exactly of the Indiana Jones franchise, where the first one was uh, sort of like insular love story between two characters that spawns out into this you know globe trotting adventure based in archaeology, and then in the second one, uh, suddenly there's the kid because it's a franchise now and. We need a kid. Um, and I think, you know, Temple of Doom actually handles uh, their kid way better than uh, The Mummy Returns does. But yeah, it is kind of the same trope, I suppose, and the same trajectory. Yeah. And, you know, something that I will never understand is the retcon that they do with Evie being the the reincarnation of Seti the First's daughter. <laughs> And the first one is just like, yeah, my mother was Egyptian. And it's like, oh, by the way, your mother was an extremely influential Egyptian. Yeah. And like, all of a sudden. 
And Imhotep like didn't like recognize her at all in the first movie. He was just like really focused on an ox and a moon. Um, oh, that was another thing actually too that I did have a little note on is like, wait, so they be they know all about the Pharaoh, like in this, in the 1999's movie, they know all the history of the Pharaoh, but they don't know Imhotep who killed him. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of those things, it's like that Futurama gag of, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Pharaoh suddenly died. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it does have it pro- its problems. The Mummy Returns, it's fine. If anything, I just want Evie's wardrobe. I just want that. And I wouldn't mind yeah. having Rick O'Connell as a husband. And then I could, I could leave it, you know? But then you got also, that shitty, annoying British kid in your second movie. <laughs> I know. Well, we wouldn't be living in England, you know? We wouldn't be living there. Fair enough. Um... Runner-up for best performance is Rick O'Connor. Is it O'Connell or O'Connor? Connell. Connell's scar- neck scarf. Yeah. He's rocking that scarf. There's, he's got a blue one and a white one, and they both look so good. Yeah. And the suspenders? Like, yeah. damn, they knew what he they looks, were working with. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got all of the iconic wardrobe of this kind of movie uh, laid out for him. And he really... He, you gotta admit, he wears it well. He does. <laughs> well, great. This was an awesome discussion. Thank you all for loving this movie so much and made this really wonderful to talk about. Um, is there any final words that folks want to say in general about The Mummy or anything else? As of this recording, it's on HBO Max, so it is incredibly easy to watch. Yeah. And if within uh, 21 years you've missed it, uh, be sure to check it out. It's probably on TBS right now. <laughs> yeah, probably as we speak. And um, if you are watching it for the first time, I don't care who you are, text me about it because I have basically forced everybody to do that. <laughs> I guess that's it, folks. So uh, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed this long time coming episode about The Mummy. I certainly did. Um, so... Give us a listen. We're on Movie John, the the Movie John Podcast Network. And uh, we'll see you next week. So have a good whatever. Bye.